This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. In order for your organization to make the best possible business decisions and to make the most of your data, you need the very best people. And that's where Orbition Group comes in. We have a proven track record in partnering with some of the largest brands in the world to the most innovative and disruptive startups and everything in between. We go beyond traditional recruitment services. The organizations which we partner with benefit from the added extras that we offer, such as raising your organization's brand awareness to the data and analytics community, providing you with insights into the current market and your competition, benchmarking you against the industry to give you the best chance to successfully attract the best talent. We want to become an extension of your business to identify, engage, attract and retain the best talent possible. If this sounds of interest, please reach out today by visiting orbitiongroup.com. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, uh, the final episode of season three. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Joseph George, who is the CEO of Dufresne. So Joseph, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I still remember your first episode, season one. Quite a yeah. journey for you. Yeah. Well, I hope I've improved since then. It's been it's been three years and 150 episodes later. So uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> well, you have no excuses now <laughs> to get it wrong. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Um, so where we always start, Joseph, as you know, is by asking our guests to give themselves a, uh, I guess, a, a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey up until this point in time, if you would be so kind. Yeah, sure. I spent most of my childhood uh, in the Middle East before moving to a place called Kerala in India when I was around 15 years old, which is where I completed my schooling. And I also obtained a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. I then joined the graduate program of Infosys as a software engineer in Bangalore. Uh, Specifically, I was a mainframe programmer. I was into programming when I was in school back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was always a planned best transition for me uh, before proceeding for higher studies, which was always my plan. Uh, The only change in that was rather than going to the US from Bangalore, I moved to the UK. And instead of doing an MBA, I decided to do a shorter one-year master's degree. I then went on to start a new career again uh, in yet another graduate program, this time at Deloitte Consulting in London where I also completed my uh, Chartered Management Accountancy qualification. So that was the end of all my studies. Uh, And then nearly eight years into my career in Deloitte and in consulting, which was all very new to me, new country, new place type of work, uh, I happened to meet some of the team from Dufresne um, on a a project in in Manchester, uh, which, and at that point, that that entire office was just starting up uh, and spotted an opportunity both ways to do something different. and. I'm sure like many people going through that stage of their career, I always had ideas and business ideas and looking at many of my friends wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but never really got out of my comfort zone. So it was a big change uh, as while it wasn't an absolute startup at that stage, I saw it that way and told the founder that this for me was a startup as everything had to change and evolve as I was getting out of my comfort zone and therefore a high risk move. Uh, didn't have a defined role or remit agreed before I joined. I had a conversation, said, let's do it and let's figure it all out as we as we go through the journey. And that's the risk I took. Nice. That's the story to the frame. Nice. So a um, couple of things there. Obviously, all good things start in Manchester, as you know, including your Dufresne career. Um, <laughs> Except football. <laughs> well, that's that's debatable. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and then so you, you joined that. How big were Dufresne at, at that time? Because obviously you've been on a huge growth journey, which I'm keen to get into, but just keen to kind of set the scene on 
how big it was when you when you kind of first uh, first landed. When I started the conversation with uh, Dufresne, um, the Manchester team was just growing. It was growing from employee number one onwards, but there was a there was a team before that in Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, I remember it was around 30 to 40 employees around that site when I was first engaged in conversations around uh, potentially going on this journey. Nice, nice. Okay. So I guess for anyone that's not familiar with Dufresne, just give us a little bit of insight into who you are, what you do, who you do it for, etc. Okay. Uh, so we are a data and analytics consultancy based in the UK. Uh, we help clients make the best use of their data assets to solve problems, achieve their business objectives. Where I think we potentially stand out in the market in our view is firstly our focus on doing data and only data. Data isn't one of our many service offerings. We didn't start as an IT company and shifted to data. Um, We've been the data company for many, many years. Um, secondly, we are the either the largest or one of the largest teams of all experienced, all permanent data professionals in the services sector in the UK. Uh, and thirdly, when we use the word consultancy, I think there is sometimes a negative connotation to it um, across, across the market. Yes, we can do PowerPoints and advisory and assessments and strategy, but our core competency and capability is delivery and getting things done. Uh, and finally, none of this means anything without an awesome culture and our people. We've been through a lot of transformation in the last five years to a very different company to what it is when it started, uh, which means a lot of change, which can be disruptive internally and cause challenges to maintaining our culture and growing it. Uh, but we've been able to maintain the core essence of it. Uh, so that's us in a nutshell. Nice. Yeah. And I guess you're you're interested by many very very large recognizable brands which is um i'm sure very interesting and uh, gonna probably be the genesis of uh, some of the stuff that we speak about t- today i guess before we do that obviously um now the ceo of defrain i'd love to kind of just get your take on you know that journey of joining as an employee and you know being being a CEO who isn't the founder and how that has kind of happened for you. Cause I'm sure there's lots of people um, listening to this who, you know, probably have similar aspirations to try and do something similar in similar types of organizations. Yeah, sure. The, uh, I think I said it the, uh, earlier, I took a, a big risk and I didn't have a, there wasn't a job spec or a role or a particular path defined. It was a conversation where uh, myself and the, the remaining co-founder at that point felt there was an opportunity on both sides. Uh, so it was a joint leap of faith, I would say, on both sides uh, to to get onto this journey without defining what it is. And let's just figure it out as we go along. I think the key thing for me at that point was, uh, was I had the position in my life and career to take a risk. I, I don't think there's ever a good time to take a risk. But uh, I'm, I'm glad I took the risk uh, because, you know, with high risk comes high reward. The um, risk for me was multifold. I've, I was only used to working in the corporate world in large companies where all of the clients are large corporates. So everyone you know works in that space uh, largely, especially when I was in London. To suddenly go to a company that is in its infancy that no one knows of where, yes, we had some ambition, but achieving it is easier said than done. So I joined as a director um, with the premise of we need to grow this business and I will. We will all uh, we will all get the rewards of it. So for me, the key key success criteria I would say four, five, six years ago when I got involved was in five years' time if we make this a better business and grow the business, that sense of achievement was first and foremost the biggest thing for me. The second thing on that journey was we want to make sure we enjoy this, and I want to enjoy and I'm having fun in this journey, and everyone involved around me things, it was quite a journey and an experience. So those two things were the most important things for me, as opposed to what comes after that. But then third thing along the line is when you go away from a an, an environment of, uh, you know, in a corporate job in a large envi- in a large organization, uh, your mind, in, in my case, my mind was very fine-tuned to what I thought my life is going to look like and what my career path is. When you get a taste of coming out of that environment into a much smaller organization, yeah, the entrepreneurial spirit and the environment you're in completely changes everything you thought about where you felt your career was heading. And I think it's very similar to your story in that what you've done there, where you suddenly realize there is this other world out here. 
there is there are lots of other opportunities in terms of how you can how you can do things in the market so for me that then resulted in the third part of the ambition of actually there is a financial incentive for growing a business and doing something properly uh, so I, within two years of the business, so yes, I joined as a director. I was within months the head of consulting. So the the team uh, or most of the team reported into me. I then very quickly became a business partner in the in the business. I was the second main shareholder to then become managing director. And then with the help of some fantastic external investors in the private equity world, my own shareholding and a great team with me internally. I led the buyout of the founders' remaining shares uh, a while back, and and that took took me to where I am today and where Dufresne is today. Nice. Quick question, more out of curiosity than anything else. Obviously, being you know working in Deloitte for a number of years, working previously in big corporate environments, do you feel, in hindsight, looking back, you were ready to take on the challenge of going from? being a big player in a big corporate that's delivering great work to growing a business because obviously as you you've probably experienced the, the two very different type of uh, type of gigs right yeah i think there there is you're never going to be ready for something like that it is a complete change and you have to experience it first and to know what it means it is not for everybody either way you know some people thrive better in a smaller medium sized environment some people thrive in a corporate much larger corporate environment so i think there are the pros and cons of both um, for me, uh, it's the unknowns. It's what everything I learned and saw uh, in that small, medium-sized environment was learning on the go. Uh, you know, there's a lot of luck in making, when I say luck, right place, right time, right things, right people around to help is a huge part of it, right? I don't think anyone is just ready to take on an opportunity either side, whether it's going from large to small or small to large. Yeah, makes uh, makes sense. So obviously, we're going to jump into um, you know an area of um, you know expertise and your forte, Joseph, with regards to you know data transformation and maybe the do's and don'ts and and some of the seven seven sins that you uh, that you speak about. Um, I know you also pulled together a pretty comprehensive report, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. So the the state of data report. Um, obviously, keen to highlight that so people can get a copy when they listen to this and we'll put put the link to that in the in the show notes but i guess just talk us through what it is why you decided to to go and build it and i guess you know more importantly what you what you found out of that yeah so i i feel like i'll be repeating a lot of things you talk about quite publicly and openly as well so i think back in um 2018 i believe we published an article in the times talking about data foundations. And the timing there was important because this is when the data world was, you may remember, getting very hyped, overhyped, I would say, about data science and data scientists, a sexiest professional and all that. You know, salaries, I mean, you work in the talent space, salaries for someone who had data science in their title was going through the roof in mm -hmm. London because everyone wanted one. However, we saw the ground realities of this in the largest to the medium-sized companies, all of our client base and, and prospects. We also got onto this advanced analytics bandwagon many years ago, but then scrapped it as we felt there are more fundamental at scale challenges in businesses uh, at that point in time. Uh, and, and there are huge gaps created between the perception that is sold and told in the market versus the reality. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned a few times, there are a lot, many podcasts such as this and many others, thought leaders, roundtables, conferences now than before. And everyone's talking about quite cool stuff. But the reality is it's happening in pockets and organizations. It's happening in certain use cases. And the rest of the organization is largely left behind in majority of the places. And more importantly, I always say the majority of the market is not even represented in any of these conferences and markets uh, because they're not that big. Mm -hmm. And they are completely left behind on this. What's the biggest buzzword right now? Gen AI. And uh, don't even listen to me. One of the big four had a report on the state of AI this year. And they believe only 27% of organizations have the processes and systems to make any benefit from this in the next two years. So we wanted to do our own report uh, based on, we always felt there was this gap between perception and reality. And uh, therefore we commissioned this report, surveyed 200 chief data officers across the UK and the US. Uh, and uh, there were a few themes we wanted to ratify, and I and I think you know, please those who are listening and interested, have a look at the report. But the main thing was perception and reality. And we had a hypothesis that the perception people are going to give around the maturity of the organization is going to be higher 
So we had a tiering of one to five. Where do you think your organization is based on certain criteria? And it did return. A, most people felt they were at four. And we expected that because we were talking to 200 sizable organizations with people who are in charge of data. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think our hypothesis would be if we had gone and asked non-data people in those same organizations, what would they have said about it? Now, we didn't cover that in the report. Um, and secondly, the interesting thing about that statistic as well is while majority of organizations felt they were at maturity level four, which means they've got access to things, all the people have access to the data, they've got efficient platforms in place, they're getting value from advanced use cases, they've got AI production use cases at scale, machine learning use cases, you know, that's what maturity level four was. Um, what was interesting in that is one of the other questions is how how effective do you think your controls and governance and quality controls are around all the data you use in the organizations? And I think it's less than 50% that said they feel that's properly in place. I mean, that in itself shows the anomaly, doesn't it? What we also did on the back of it outside of the report is we looked internally based on our active client base and clients we've worked with over the last five years, which is nearly 100 organizations in the UK, um, largely in the UK. Uh, and very large businesses, FTSE 100 companies to some uh, slightly smaller organizations as well. And we looked at, based on what we know, where do we, I asked our teams internally to rate where we think those organizations are based on what we've done there. And consistently, the numbers are much lower. Uh, no one's at four. Everyone sits between two and three because the transformation and change and all the cool stuff that everyone's talking about is happening in silos or in certain divisions. So that was the essence of the report. Mm, yeah. I mean, as, as you mentioned, uh, I talk about this a lot. I mean, if I think to back to 2018, I can remember multiple meetings that I'd go and sit in, you know, with um, business leaders who were looking to build entire data science teams and you'd have a conversation with them about, okay, well, where are you up to on this journey? And it become very evident very quickly. They just weren't ready for this they had no need i spent most of my time telling them that they shouldn't and you know a, a good analyst would suffice at this point in time you know they didn't have access to the data they had no idea how you know how how good the data was how reliable it was etc etc and um you just sat there thinking this is going to be a colossal waste of time for most businesses but as you very rightly said often it's driven by those pockets of success stories right where they've done something in in one part of the business that's provided a, a good return and then everyone thinks okay well if they're doing data science we should do it but it's the maturity is is kind of disconnected which is is really interesting okay so i guess in your mind then between that report and helping those 100 plus companies over the, the five past five years um what what's your kind of current stance and view on the state of data more holistically i think um i will quote a very senior CDO at a very sizable organization um, in, in the UK, uh, across Europe, Remit, who recently told me, data is important, of course, but for the boards right now, it's not urgent. And I think that summarizes the state of the, the, the market in a way. Uh, and if you think about it, why would that be the case? Because at the moment, there is a bit of a uh, challenge in the market, economically, in certain sectors. Uh, there are certain uncertainties certainties on how the market's going to perform. So certain piece, purse strings are, are being tightened and boards rightfully want to look at making sure they're spending money on the right things right now in the short term. It's a short term cyclical thing. And surely they can't draw an immediate line to profits and revenue, right? That's That's why it's important, but not urgent. And I think it is a tale of two halves. I talk about there are some companies, there are definitely some organizations who are significantly ahead of the curve and are doing some brilliant things. Uh, they, they, they've been at this in terms of investing in data, strategically thinking about the long term. There are some that are way ahead of the pack, and I, I, can, I can think of some role model organizations that are doing a great job. But the majority are still grappling with this. And I would say the majority still don't have the basics of you know, the, the catchphrase, the right people getting access to the right data at the right time. That's the catchphrase, but I'd add to it in an efficient way. And what I mean by that is even in the largest organizations where, I mean, many of, many of these uh, leaders have been guests on your show, 
yes, there's some great things going on, but you still go to some big departments there and there's a team of 20 people running Excel together to get some MI that takes 25 days to do a month-end report, <laughs> which in today's world you should be able to do in a day. That is just the reality of it, right? And I think, it is, and that's what I mean by it is the tale of two halves. The uh, other thing I would also say on this is uh, the reality is, yes, there is an explosion in the volume of data. Everyone talks about all the data, structured and unstructured. But the reality is it's the street light effect, right? You know, you know, you can only see the bits of the street that's lightened by the street, uh, by the lights. Not, you know, it's all the dark parts of the street no one's looking at. You're not using all the data properly. Yes, there's advances in tech, but you can only be as fast as the weakest link in that end-to-end process, which could be people. It could be that team sitting there grappling with Excel while everything else in that supply chain might be high tech. And yes, there are advances in algorithms and tools, but the majority of the use cases are still not using any advanced AI. They're using the same old algorithms and statistical principles that's existed for decades. So, and the pace of disruption has accelerated. So companies can't stand still and um, it is a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't um, couldn't agree more. I, I guess we're going to jump into the seven sins in terms of what you see as the things that, you know, block us to, to data transformation. But um, if we just kind of, coin this in terms of your experience what what are the biggest challenges that you see for most organizations in terms of realizing value you talked about there there's no direct line of sight to you know profits and revenue so therefore it's 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 important but it's it's not urgent right what what do you think is the blocker from them realizing value in that context from the investments that they're making so i i don't think it's one single uh, reason. First of all, this is difficult. It isn't easy to um, to do all the things we talk about in the data world and quickly show how it all trans- translates into pounds and pence. Right. That that's a very difficult job and one of the most difficult challenges of any data leader. So I don't envy anyone who's in that position, which is anyone that's in a senior role doing this. What I would say to to this is from a I mean, if you look at some of the statistics, and this is whether it's a Gartner report or uh, a- a- any of the other uh, big credible reports on this, is they use the phrase majority of data initiatives fail. Now, fail is too harsh a word. I would I would change that to does not deliver the desired benefits or the outcomes in the eyes of the people spending the money, uh, which is the senior senior people in the organization. And why is that? So if you look at that statistic from five years ago to now, that's to, that is still more or less the same. Majority of the, the numbers are as high as 60 to 70% don't necessarily give the desired benefits. Uh, and, and that's not just, by the way, in the UK, that you go to any data-related conference anywhere in the world, you'll see that statistic. So the the when we look, when I was looking at this like four or five years ago, uh, was like, why is that the case? And there was a, a, a list of reasons we could just spot from our limited exposure to the clients and prospects we've got around why we could see some of these things could potentially not be delivering the benefits. And pretty much most of those reasons are non-technical or non-data related in a, in a way, which is why I came up with, okay, how can I explain this to non-data people? and coined the seven sins of data transformation, which was largely intended at the non-data audience and organizations. Uh, It's something I first presented at a few uh, events four years ago and haven't spoken about it since then. But I think this year, last year, I've resurrected it and looked at it. And I can still say, while there's been lots lots of progress and changes and evolution on it, I think there are still some fundamentals in that that still holds true. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I think it's it's interesting. So I uh, I put something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks back where um, for the first time in a long time, I was um, looking at my LinkedIn profile and, you know, the about me section. And in there, I'd written something 2018, I think it was, and I'd not changed it since. And I was reading through, you know, some of the kind of statements that I, I was making. And I was like, I could I could copy and paste that and update it today, and they would practically all still be the same, which is um, is really interesting. Well, let's jump into into that then. I, I guess obviously we we often talk about data being a transformational and change type of initiative in inside organisations. So what what do you see as as those seven sins? And uh, if you've got any examples along the way, that'd be uh, hugely appreciated. Yeah, I'll. Uh try and give examples for this because otherwise it may sound a bit too generic for some and for others, it may not make much sense. So the first one, I just call it think data. 
again, just bear in mind that this is in light with people who are not necessarily working in a data function, right? Uh, what I mean by that is no matter what you're doing, think about how data could be critical or enable you to do what you're doing better. Now, if I give some real examples on this, and again, this is not cool stuff, but some realities of what every organization is going through. So if I take financial services as an example, banking, let's say retail corporate commercial banking. Over the last five, 10 years, there's been lots of regulation come in. And there's been, with all the goodwill and all the nice and good investments these organizations have done, nevertheless, it's difficult to get it all perfectly correct first time. So there have been lapses, which has resulted in breaches, compliance issues, right? So I would say there is barely a sizable financial services organization that hasn't been going through some sort of a reme regulatory remediation program in the last five, six years in particular, even now, still. And a famous one in this is PPI from five, 10 years ago. But there's so many regulations uh, that you'll be surprised once you get into it. And everyone's got made some mistake there, so they're fixing it. Now, where well, it, this is quite interesting because I've seen in multiple organizations, especially in, I'm talking even pre-COVID areas, where they would set up the program to fix it. They would get the best legal people, regulatory people, uh, inevitably, all of these programs, because of the nature of it, uh, going into re reporting into regulators and to the board, will have one of the very large consultancies represented to make sure governance and audit and all of that is in place. They'll have project managers, business analysts, the whole lot set up, uh, ready to create some automated solution to quickly remediate millions of customers or whatever it is. And organization after organization after organization, where we spotted the where the critical part for a lot of these program sat was, can you actually even access the data you need to start analyzing where the problems are? I mean, that sounds silly, but the reality is I've seen programs where the whole infrastructure and the machine is set up with hundreds of people ready to do things. And to get some of the customer data, it's sitting on a mainframe somewhere where there's only one person who knows how it runs. And that person probably doesn't even work in the organization anymore. And, you know, it, it, that sounds comical, but that is in a way that I'm probably exaggerating a bit, but it's something as simple as that would be excluded from a program plan around how do we get the data? How do we actually then get the data and manipulate it and make sure we can then make sure we're getting real-time updates to that so that we make sure we don't do more breaches? Sounds straightforward. We're talking about extracting data, manipulating it, ensuring we can then uh, do proper customer segmentation or it's as basic as that, but the amount of complexity involved in doing that and the amount of programs that have delayed um, achieving compliance as a result of that, that's just that part of the process is just out, is, is astounding. So that's what I mean by the think data point, because what's happened in all those programs is there's no one with the data lens on that's been involved in those projects at the start, and then data comes on later on. And we've seen that in so many places, so many organizations. So that's one example. I'll give you another example. This was a global transformation program, big bank, international bank in one of their divisions a uh, few years ago. And it was meant to revolutionize their product line in that particular vertical. So they they identified a new banking platform for this. Now this banking flat pl platform uh, was meant to hold all the product sets across 35, 36 markets. The reality is each market had five or six different product stacks and tech stacks that held these. So it was a very complicated program. They, they spend a year doing a target operating model exercise. So you know, this beautiful 700 slide PowerPoint pack saying how we're going to go from A to B, product stack, customer set, channels, place, people, everything was covered. What was interesting in that is we uh, there was a next phase around, okay, we now need to execute this. And um, okay, we need to work out how we're going to migrate from 100 systems into one in 34 different countries. And you looked at this target operating model PowerPoint pack, not one paid slide mentioned data. And there was a footnote in the assumptions that said data and information layer was considered out of scope for this exercise. And they spent six to 12 months then trying to figure out, okay, how do we come up with a migration plan? I mean, it was sort of starting from scratch again. So obviously lots of stress pressure, we need to execute, we need to see benefits, we need to show something's going live. Um, I mean, fast forward three, four years later, the entire program's been scrapped. Uh, and, th and this goes on and on. You know, that, and that was the point around Think Data. Mm. Yeah. Is that, 
in your opinion, is, is that why you kind of think a lot of these initiatives within organizations, especially programs of that size and scale, you know, they, they get labeled a cost center, right? Because the execution often never actually comes to fruition because of maybe that lack of thought around, well, how do we actually get hold of the data to, <laughs> to, to, to kind of go through this big transformational journey? Yeah, uh, definitely. And I, I would, again, uh, just caveat this by saying I think it's w- way better now compared to two, three years ago. Um, I do think everyone's got data and AI at the forefront, top down. Uh, but again, you come across the organizations that are definitely way ahead and making sure they don't make this mistake versus most of the others that still have multiple priorities to juggle with. And they're not going to think of data first when they are dealing with some other problem. Yeah. Okay, cool. So number one, think data. Got it. And gr- great example. So thanks for that. What's uh, What's number two? So I've not heard many people really talk about this, and maybe I've not been at the right events where it's mentioned, but I call it Delivery 101, and I'm talking good old project management, project program management, right? So we're talking about execution failures and execution not resulting in things, and everyone talks about it from a data, technology, culture, literacy lens, Uh, but for you to go from A to B, you need to have a plan. You need to, someone needs to manage going from A to B. That's a skill on its own. That's not a data skill. and where I would specifically draw examples on this is I have gone into projects where you're installing or implementing a data platform and you have a data team stand doing scrum and they, they're agile and you go to the project daily standups and they have risk issue logs and you go and ask the people on the ground, what's the difference between a risk and an issue? I've seen people not being able to explain that or everyone give a different definition of what they think a risk and an issue is. I mean, how are you managing risks and issues on this program if not everyone understands that? I'll give a more, more basic example. What, do you, what is the definition of done? So, okay, we're going to do this four-month project where we are going to take, we are going to sh- bring this use case to life and the benefit of this is X. The reality is for that X means one thing for the CIO It means one thing for the data leader. It means another thing for the person who's looking to get some business benefit, which may be the CFO or the CEO or some business owner. I've seen projects where we're implementing, let's move to a new platform, let's move to the cloud, let's see how this works, let's move the CRM data sets into this and create a data model we can do BI from. Great. And let's prove we can create it. And at the end of the project realized that success for the CIO who was the sponsor of the project was creating a data schema where you can generate some Power BI reports from was success for the CIO, whereas success for the CEO was, this is all done. All the sources are in here. I can now do advanced analytics on it tomorrow and actually see benefits in product pricing and how we market to certain segments, which was months away because that involved a lot more explosion and advance, uh, advancement to this data model. And what what happens in that in that context? The program has failed, hasn't it? And this is why it adds to the statistic. Um, CIO gets replaced, data person gets replaced. Let's go and get someone else who can get it run, right? Because the definition of done was different. The other thing I would say as well is there's a lot of organize again significantly better now, but there's a lot of organizations. Everyone's agile now. No one likes the word waterfall, but I think just having a daily stand up meeting with the scrum board doesn't necessarily make you efficiently agile there are organizations that do it brilliantly that really do it well but for a lot of organizations they call it agile but it's just a way to have less governance and less documentation and it's still waterfall you know the program plans still show oh we need requirements first and then we'll do design then we'll do build then we'll do test uh, whereas or people wanting fixed price to deliver agile projects where an agile project where the very nature is all about incremental benefits uh, and continuous value generation. Uh, but the challenge in those cases is who's going to translate the benefit to each different stakeholder who each has a different interpretation of what the benefit they're going to get it and a different vested interest. For me, all of this comes down to its project delivery one-on-one basics. Mm, yeah, that's a, a fascinating point because I think I've spoken about this and it's been something having these types of conversations that was kind of floating around my mind that what what I was seeing was fairly obvious, right? You know, we talk about a lack of a lack of value, but it's because what value is to the CEO or the key stakeholder of the business is often vastly different to what value might mean for 
that data team delivering the project or the key stakeholder of that data team, right? So it's all they're on two different pages. So it's no wonder then that if they don't, if they're not on the same page with regards to what done is and what becomes valuable, then you know, um, <laughs> is it any wonder? So yeah, makes uh, makes sense. Okay, so two delivery one hundred one. Okay, what about three? Three is one team, one dream collaboration, and I mean this from three different. Uh, uh, three in with three different lens. One is internal between business and IT, um, internally between business units, and especially in the larger organizations, and then externally with your partners and your suppliers that are helping you with it. So you always, you go into an organization where there is a challenge, you ask what's happening. Most times the answer is it is someone else's problem. It is IT, it is them, it is, it is not us or they, they don't know what they're doing, this other business unit, or, or there'll be business units, especially in the larger organizations, global enterprises, where there are people doing some cool things here. And you go, well, this other team there, they don't even know that you're doing this, and they're doing their own proof of concept with what you've just done in the last year. People don't talk to each other, necessarily, the larger the organization. And it's, it's pretty much in every organization. I mean, just recently, I was abroad in another country, and I met uh, the CDO of a large insurance company who's based in that region. And they said, oh, my biggest success in the last two years is I've, I've, I've created this pricing model with all these data sets. And we've created a platform on how we do this and the benefits to the underwriters and our claims process is X. And I said, okay, so you've done all that in the last two years, but your organization's been in London for decades with a very established data team for decades. Did, did, you, did you speak to them? Did you check what they have in place? Surely they have this. He, this person hasn't even spoken to that team. They haven't even checked what this other you know, the London team's done over the last 20 years, 30 years. No copy, no copy-paste, no checking what's useful. That's one example. Another example I will give is specifically pre-pandemic when more people were around meeting in person is uh, there was a very large organization where this one person once told me, oh, I like meeting you for coffee because I learn more about what's happening with data in my organization speaking to you than I get from internally. And this person worked in data because it was a very federated model in that organization. Um, and the last thing I'd say, say on this as well is it was actually at one of your events, uh, Kyle, where I think there was a discussion on federated versus centralized model for data. And uh, I remember a couple of people saying, oh, no, in our organization, it's very federated, but we don't have a central CDO team or a CDO function. We don't operate that way. Each business unit has its own uh, data function, and it works perfectly. And there was this challenge raised in the thing. How does that work centrally? Surely someone needs to own this together. Surely someone at this level, there is someone playing that. And there was a case made against it. And two weeks later, after that roundtable, I was at a data event, and the global CDO of that very same organization <laughs> came on stage to, to talk about what they do there. And I was like, how do these people not 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 know that these these two people exist? You know, and that's what I mean by collaboration. Sounds wow. basic, but I think I think there is a bit of everyone needs to be a bit humble to accept there might be someone else in the organization that may know better than you and go and seek that information first. Mm. Yeah. Well, well that is uh I mean, yeah, if you don't even know <laughs> don't know who's on your team. <laughs> but it's uh yeah, difficult, uh difficult one. Okay, cool. What's uh what's next? Uh, this is about all the basics and foundation, and I know you talk a lot about this, and I call it slow to walk whilst you run. Uh, I think there is this narrative increasingly around you you need to get your foundations right. You need to get your foundations right. And if you go and speak to someone who works in governance or data governance, data management, it depends on where it is. You see a, still a lot of people saying you need to get it right before you do anything else, whereas you go and talk to people who are on the more other side of the data spectrum, more doing your advanced analytics. They are all about let's experiment and let's do proof of concepts and the governance will follow. And I, I think the reality is you need to do a bit of both, right? It's not one extreme or the other. Uh, and that's about the slow to walk whilst you run. And you, if you really want to stay out of the pack, you need to find a way in which you have a portfolio approach to doing multiple use cases, because most of it, like a science experiment, won't work. And then, But then equally, you need to make sure you're building your foundations in parallel so that when you do get that one experiment that works, how do you quickly productionize that at scale? And not just productionize it at scale and then get over with it, but productionize it at scale and continue maintaining it. Because that's the challenge most organizations have, not doing the experiment bit, but productionizing at scale. So it's a bit of both. Now, again, lots of organizations that do as well, uh, but majority of organizations don't. 
Yeah, hundred percent. As you said, I think that's something that I I speak about quite a lot, often fueled by conversations on this podcast, right? And this whole notion of quick wins versus the strategic transformational journey. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and as you say, you know, the, the, there's certainly instances where those quick wins, you know, and they are necessary to kind of prove value and get buy-in and, and all of that type of, of stuff. But equally, you've got to be laying the foundations for what's going to come down the line, you know, if you want to get to the bigger ticket value items, right? Which makes um, makes perfect sense. Okay, so that's four. What's, uh, what's, what's the fifth sin? Business value. So the, the, this goes to the point I mentioned on why do project or projects fail? And I changed the fail to not generate the necessarily necessary business benefit to the different stakeholders who are looking at benefit from different perspectives. You're, you're running a business, Kyle. I'm running a company. And you know quite well that at the end of the day, you can have all the great ideas, all the great strategy, all the great governance and control in place. But if you can't generate revenue and you're not generating profit, um, you know that, that there's a limit to what you can do beyond that point. And I think that is an important lesson for everybody involved. And it's not just data. This is non-data people as well. But across all levels of the organization, including the most junior staff, I would say, is it's trying to educate people on um, no, you're not building a Power BI dashboard. That's not your job. Your job is you are actually doing some pricing analytics with using Power BI, but that's going to help marketing department A or customer department A generate more customers, which results in more revenue or helps us make a decision on what products to place into the market. And it's changing the language from technical speak into that business value speak so that everyone understands at the end of the day, no matter what you do, it it needs to generate a return for the shareholders, for the board. Uh, I think it's a fundamental thing. 100%. Couldn't agree more. And I think I have this conversation quite a lot, you know, as we often construct teams for for CDOs, as an example. Um, you know, you get into, especially with people who are earlier in their career, you know, they look at this as, well, my job is to, you know, um, do the code to help build the platform or what you know whatever the 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 job is and it's it's very difficult to get them to think commercially because they've never been in that environment before but the ones that tend to go furthest quickest catch on to that quite quickly and and tie everything they do to an outcome and then you know that allows them to propel themselves in their career because the next interview they go to they can say well you know I did this that helped build this platform which got us whatever quicker access to insights which means we made decisions on products in which locations and that resulted in you know uplifting revenue right um and i think you know the the sooner most more data analytics teams think like that the better so absolutely with you on uh, on that one okay number six easier said than easier said than done though but yes. of course absolutely yeah absolutely i mean obviously for some people it comes quite naturally just to be commercially minded and for other people it's completely alien right um so so yeah um number six right we're rattling through no, them yeah number six is just d and i would like to say it's d for Dufresne, but no it's not it is <laughs> um d for all the things that start with data data driven data culture data literacy data uh, you know and all those words uh, i think there's a few different points here so firstly and i'll just stick to two. One is if you look at the organizations that are most mature with this, that have the biggest budgets to spend on data, that's got board buy-in, right investment in the data with all the right intentions in place. And they still struggle sometimes to make the best use of all of that. And if you go and ask the people involved in this, why that is the case, it does come down to, yes, we've got all the things I've just mentioned, but the non-data business leaders that are running the various PLs and the various revenue and the various business units, they've got many priorities. You know, they need to look at this from so many different perspectives and getting their buy-in along this journey, which again goes back to the previous point around the only way to get that, especially when resources are they're juggling multiple resources and there are constraints of time, is without translating into the benefit, which ultimately will either come down to revenue, profit, compliance, uh, you're not going to get the attention. And I think that is a huge challenge. And uh, and, I, and I think a lot of people talk about that being a, uh, being a blocker in achieving some ambitions, but it goes back to my previous point, because without explaining the benefit in those terms, you are going to struggle 
to get the buy-in from all these other business leaders. That's one point. The other example I would give is around data literacy. Now, I don't, th- so literacy uh, in my context is more basic than any tools and how everyone's got access to data and they can do, uh, they can do some basic uh, analytics with it. It's actually as simple as can you can you read and argue with data. So I would even start as fundamental as if you look at the key KPIs of your business that shared financial. Let's talk about the financial KPIs. I guarantee you, you put five people to read those numbers or those graphs, and anything apart from revenue and profit, which is easy to understand, people will have different interpretations of it. People look at it in different lenses. And I see this myself. If I just put up a chart explaining something that's not as simple as revenue, people look at it from different angles. So just, I think the skill set of knowing how to, I would say, argue, analyze data. And I think that's part numerical, part logical reasoning, part a bit about IQ. You know, th- those all those things become fundamental in it. Now, you can't change that overnight in an organization. But if you are really on this quest to make sure everyone's got access to the right information and can make data-driven decisions, you need to consider that throughout your entire value cycle from what sort of people you bring in, what sort of uh, infrastructure you've got to upskill and train and continuously educate people on what these things mean. Um, And it goes beyond that, right? So it's not an overnight fix, but I think it's quite fundamental. And I think in the absence of that, we can deploy the best tools and make sure everyone's got access to data. But you're not necessarily going to get the business to generate the business, the benefits you're expecting at scale. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think this often is a huge, a huge challenge, right? I think everything you're talking there is more of adoption to a mindset and behavior of working, so that people have the fundamental skills to be able to do something with the work that data teams are providing, right? Because in many organisations, that's still a challenge, and if they can't, then it makes it very difficult for anyone to to kind of for the business to get the benefit right so last but not least number seven last but not least just says uh it's you it has to start with you the person listening to this because what i feel is when we talk about all of these topics it's always spoken about in the lens of it's someone else's problem it's someone else's fault i'm doing everything i can i know all these things i've just spoken about is important but they don't get it. Uh, someone else is not giving the budget. I'm struggling with X. My remit is moving into IT. And I guarantee you, if the individuals just look at themselves in the mirror and look across these six things I've just mentioned before that and see, are you doing all the things here? Or are you creating, or are you doing any of these, committing any of these sins? Uh, I think, you know, the state, the, the, the point here being the change starts with you. Yeah. And for every data leader I've met, any business leader I've met, you know, from you, me, people in my organization, your organization, I think there is a bit here around the change starts with you as opposed to pointing at others. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, look, Joseph, I'm conscious of of time. I guess what I wanted to get your thoughts on before we finish up today is, is obviously we've covered a lot there. And I think those seven sins are um, really interesting and obviously very prevalent because both you and I see that those things happen all you know all over the industry time and time again um where does the whole conversation around things you know and we touched upon this briefly but kind of operating model and team structure you know the whole cultural change the whole literacy adoption you know all of these things that have become I don't want to say excuses, but reasons to, you know, as to why things haven't quite worked out. How does that all play into kind of these seven sins? And do you think there's anything that typically stands out as more of a challenge or less of a challenge around them things? I I, I think there's, if I look at it from a fundamental side, um, if you can't explain the benefit of why this is important in the first case, I think you know, without that, none of the others is going to happen. And you're not going to take your organization along. You're not going to take your colleagues along. So I would say as a fundamental point, it's what is the benefit of doing anything we think we all need to do as data people? 
and 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 you work backward from there because without when you do that you then start getting the right buy-ins in the different pockets now again easier said than done priorities change we talk about um especially in this fast moving world and the pace at which disruption happens especially with tech is we could talk about all this and nine months later that's legacy and you have to go again so it isn't an easy challenge and um and hence why there is a role for senior data leaders who can help navigate this change and you talk a lot about it in terms of it's not about whether you can code in python or sql it's broader around business change and business transformation and cultural change right those are the skills needed yeah. but without without showing the benefit you know it's a case of survival the role won't last long and i think more importantly you see now one of the trends coming up is especially with ai and gen ai there's the question of where does the accountability for it sit should it sit with the cdo or should it sit with the cio and actually the cio is meaning winning more times on that one now and you see the cdo role collapsing in a few organizations increasingly as well yeah yeah absolutely and for me i think that comes down to exactly what you've just said there right it's being able to articulate and quantify the business benefit of the work that's being done by that team and i think you know rightly or wrongly whether we like it or not you know the role of the cdo now it's almost just become honed in on can you can you demonstrate and show us what the value is and can you articulate that in business terms and that's really becoming the job of the of the cdo right obviously there's a whole gambit of things that fall off of that in terms of what needs to happen to get to that point that they are also responsible for but as far as the board and the exco and the ceo are often concerned it's it's that right we've, we've pumped x amount of millions of pounds into this we need you now to tell us what you're going to do to you know return return or something which it's kind of fair enough, right? If you're running a business, that, that's that's what it comes down to. That's the the whole purpose. So, um, Joseph, look, great conversation. Um, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, before we finish, if anybody does want to get hold of the state of data report, obviously I'll stick it on the um I'll stick it on the show notes so people can find it there. But where else can they find it? And if they do want to speak to you, you know, about working with the frame or yourself or interested in picking your brains, having a conversation, how's best for them to reach you? Uh, please do visit our website where you can get the report to frame.co.uk and uh, I'm easily accessible on LinkedIn and uh, we can take it from there. Perfect. All right, Joseph. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to chatting to you soon. Thank you very much, Carl. Thanks for the time. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bye.